The following message was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009. So for the next six to eight weeks, I want to do just basic, fundamental, key foundational truths in the Christian life. Just a series of them each week, kind of a survey. Priority doctrines of the Bible and of the Christian faith. And it's like Christianity 101, or at least it used to be, these doctrines I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the person of the Holy Spirit, creation, the doctrine of hell, the gospel, resurrection. These are the things I'm thinking about. Which historically in the Christian church, these were basic, these were foundational, these were fundamental. But did you know that in this day and age, these are being undermined even in the so-called evangelical church? Basic biblical truths being undermined. So I thought all the more important to be reminded of these great truths. Today we look at the first one in this series that I'm just calling the forgotten fundamentals. And the first one is the Trinity, the triune God that we serve. So let's go ahead and look together at Scripture at the Trinity why it's important and what the Bible has to say about it, and then also, is it relevant to our life? Is it practical? The doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. By the way, these, another benefit of studying the fundamentals of the faith that I'm talking about, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, your view of creation, these used to be traditional litmus tests for spiritual truth. That's how you discern and can peg a false religion or a false prophet or something that was off kilter, spiritually speaking. You could use these as litmus tests. What does this person believe about the Trinity? What does this so-called preacher, pastor, author believe about the deity of Christ? What does this person who's knocking at my door believe about the personality of the Holy Spirit? So these are tools to help the Christian to be discerning. As First Thessalonians 5 says, examine everything carefully, literally scrutinize every so-called spiritual truth carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil doctrine. We are called as Christians to be discerning believers and we need to use the Word of God to help us. And knowing the fundamentals is a tool or a grid that makes that easier for us. So that's a practical reason why we're studying the fundamentals of the faith because... There are many people that are attacking the doctrine of the Trinity, which is basic in the heart of Christianity is the Trinity. And there are people undermining it, all the way from historically false religions have quickly attacked. That's usually their first attack is on the Trinity, and they say it is not in the Bible, and it's also illogical. And we're in a scientific age, and it becomes more and more illogical to believe in the Trinity. So false religions have always denied the heart of Christianity, which is the triune God of the Trinity. Joseph Smith, for example, in the 1830s, who founded the Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons are not shy or embarrassed at the fact that they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. They are vociferous and dogmatic about it. And they write on it. They preach on it. Joseph Smith himself, who founded the church, said many times a sentence like this. And this is a quote from their so-called prophet. Many men say, and then he's talking about Christians who lived in his day, Christian denominations, many men say there is one God. He, he believed in three gods. So he's questioning this idea of one God. Many men say there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all only one God. 
I say, that is a strange God. A monster. That's a direct attack on the triune God that the Bible reveals. So that was when the church of the Mormon church started. And then even today, the president, prophet, so-called prophet, an apostle of the Mormon church, Gordon B. Hinckley, who's probably, if he's still alive, he's in his 90s now, and he speaks authoritatively for God to the church, supposedly from a Mormon point of view. He's gone on record. He's written many books. And Gordon B. Hinckley says this, and this is the modern-day view of Mormonism about the triune God of the Bible or the Trinity that we hold so dear. He's written and he says, Some say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one. I wonder how they ever arrive at that. How could Jesus have prayed to Himself when He uttered the Lord's Prayer? So, number one, the current president of the Mormon church doesn't believe in the Trinity, denies it, and secondly, he convolutes what the Trinity really is and teaches, and we're going to get to that. But it's not just other false religions or what we would call cults that reject the Trinity and undermine it. It's actually now happening in the so-called evangelical church, happening among so-called evangelicals, some that are very well known, some that are best-selling Christian authors are either rejecting the Trinity, historically understood, or undermining it by distorting it. It's rampant. I just think about a recent article in Christianity Today that one of a friend of mine who's a pastor showed me and he says, can you believe this? And we're reading through it. And it's a discussion of well-known evangelicals here in America, so-called evangelicals, discussing whether we even need to believe in the Trinity anymore. I mean, why did we make such a big deal of it historically? It's, it's divisive. And you can be a Christian without really believing in the Trinity. That was the essence of the article in Christianity Today. They're entertaining that. This was recent. Here's a pastor who's written two books on the topic. The Heresy of Trinity, the Trinity, and then another one he wrote, The Openness of, or the Oneness of God, Pastor David Bernard in New Life United Pentecostal Church in Austin, Texas. Written two books on this issue. He says it's one of the greatest heresies today confronting the Christian church is to believe and perpetuate the idea of the Trinity. New Life United Pentecostal Church. By the way, the word united in the name of a church usually is a red flag in my experience. If anything, just so you know. But here's what he says. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. That's pretty categorical, isn't it? So-called evangelical Protestant pastor. Today, I'm going to say just the opposite. He says, the Bible does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. I will say, the Bible teaches the doctrine of the Trinity. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity, he says, and he goes on. And Trinitarianism actually contradicts the Bible. It does not add any positive benefit to the Christian message. The doctrine of the Trinity does detract from the important biblical themes of the oneness of God and the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. Wow, that's a popular, well-known pastor that's writing books on the topic today. That is scary. That is sad. And so one of the jobs of a shepherd, one of the jobs of an elder, one of the jobs of the local church is to warn believers of false teaching. Protect the sheep, not just physically, but more importantly, how you think. Doctrine, truth. So that's what I want to do today is protect our thinking and let's get biblical and avoid these dangerous heresies that are being promoted. Uh, let's go on. Go ahead and look at your handout now. The Forgotten Fundamentals, the Trinity. Put your thinking cap on. We're delving into the deepest mystery that God has ever revealed or unveiled in Scripture, and that is His triune nature. And I put there, the doctrine of the Trinity is the most distinct feature of Christianity, without a doubt. There is no religion or belief system that holds to anything similar to it. All other religions hold to basal mono, monotheism, 
pantheism, modalism, or polytheism. Only the Bible teaches that the one true God is an eternal, immutable, social being of three equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You reject the Trinity and then you reject the rest of the Bible. Embrace the Trinity and you embrace the only one true God of the universe. That's what the Bible teaches. Let's look at some of these introductory notes that will help us in our study as I came up with ten points I want to highlight about the truth of the Trinity, but by way of introduction, some definitions I put there. It's where people get tripped up here. What is the Trinity? The word Trinity, there is, it says there is one God. It's true monotheism. We are a monotheistic religion. One God who exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal. And they share one nature or essence as the being of God. That's an orthodox definition of the Trinity. Trinity comes from the word triunity. The basis of the word Trinity means three within the one. That is, the three persons are united as one God. Eternal definition. Never had a beginning. Has always existed. Never will end. Supersedes time. The the emphasis I wanted to put there was that there are some Mormon theologians. One of the greatest apologists of the Mormon church is Dr. Stephen Robinson, and he's written several books, and he's saying that Mormonism believes that Jesus is eternal, but he says that eternal doesn't necessarily mean it didn't have or it hasn't always existed. So he says Jesus is eternal, but Jesus was created, and Jesus hasn't always existed. So he's playing word games. That isn't what eternal means. Uh, Person, an intelligent, self-conscious Social soul with a will, emotion, and immortality. Immortality means it will never die. That's even true of unbelievers. Did you know that? Unbelievers have immortality. They will never die. That's John chapter 5. Everyone will be resurrected from the dead, believers and unbelievers, and will be either consigned to eternal hell or be allowed to go to heaven with God forever, immortal, never dying. That is a person made in the God's image. Foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. People will object and say, well, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible. Yeah, that's true. But that really has nothing to do with the issue. The word Jesus never existed in the Old Testament. Are you going to tell me that Jesus isn't in the Old Testament? The word church never exists in the Old Testament. Is the church not a, an idea or a concept or a plan of God in His eternal plan? So that's an illegitimate argument. But anyway, Trinity is just a convenient word to summarize many other biblical truths. That's all. That's what it is. It's just a term of convenience to summarize things. So it is legitimate. It has good meaning. And the word Trinity represents those seven foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. Every single one of those seven is clearly taught in Scripture. So if somebody's arguing with you, well, the Trinity's not in the Bible, that's why I don't believe in Christianity, and that's why I don't believe in Jesus. Uh, that's kind of a... They're trying to get you off track of what's really important to talk about. Then say, granted, yeah, true, Trinity is not in the Bible. Let's not talk about that. But let's talk about one through seven. Can't escape that. Well, what are these seven foundations? There is only one God. That's clearly taught in the Bible. Number two, the Father is fully God. Number three, the Son is fully God. The Bible teaches that. Number four, the Bible teaches the Holy Spirit is fully God. By the way, in the next two to three weeks, we're going to be looking at that. We'll spend a whole Sunday on the fact that Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Number five, the Father is not the Son. The Father is not the same person as the Son. That's where Gordon B. Hinckley got, of the Mormon Church got confused. He had a wrong definition and understanding of what the Trinity is. So he's, he's criticizing a caricature, not the real thing of the Trinity. 
He thinks we believe that the Father is the same person as the Son. No, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not the Trinity. That is not what we believe. Number six, the Father is not the Holy Spirit. They are not the same person. And then number seven, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Son is a different person than the Holy Spirit. Well, this is, ah, this is hard to grasp and understand. You're hurting my brain. Good. It should be hurting your brain. We're talking about the almighty, infinite, eternal, transcendent God of the universe. And we are fallen, sinful, finite beings. We should have a hard time understanding completely God in His fullness. Some bad math. That's the next point there. The people use trying to represent the Trinity. People say, oh, so you believe in one God plus one God plus one God equals one God? No. And they're saying one plus one plus one is not one. Yeah, I know one plus one and one is not one. But that isn't what we believe. And it's not one person plus one person plus one person equals one person. That is a false equation as well. Well, what is it then? We say one person plus one person plus one person equals three persons. One plus one plus one is three. We believe in that mathematical principle. Three persons within the one God. Or, somebody stated it this way, one times one times one equals one. Isn't that true mathematically? Yes. Other Christian theologians have summarized it by saying, Hank Hanegraaff is well known for doing this, trying to explain the Trinity. We're talking about one what and three who's. That's a good way to do it. One what and three who's. One what is the being and essence of who God is, who is made up of the three who's, three distinct persons. Another way it's been said that might be helpful is three subjects and one object. The subjects are the three distinct persons. The object is God Himself in His nature and in His being. And others have said three eyes in one it. The eyes being the persons, the it being the very essence and nature of God that is shared by all three persons of the Trinity. Critics. Keep this in mind as you're sharing the gospel or defending your faith or somebody's inquiring about what you believe and they bring up the Trinity. Those who reject the Trinity usually don't have a problem with the biblical definition of the Trinity. Keep that in mind. Those who reject the Trinity usually don't have a problem with the biblical definition of the Trinity. Well, what do they have a problem with? Well, number one, they have a problem with their own wrong definition of the Trinity. They have a problem with their distorted, distorted caricature of what the Trinity really is. So when they're critiquing the Trinity, they're actually usually critiquing an unbiblical view of the Trinity. I find that true all the time. I remember a good friend I had who was a Jehovah's Witness. and we were t- When I first got saved, I was sharing the Gospel with him and he just categorically outright, oh, I don't believe in your view of Christianity because it's not biblical. Well, why not? Because you believe in the Trinity. Well, yeah, I do believe in the Trinity. Well, said so that is not logical. Why is the Trinity not logical? Because you got, how can Jesus pray to the Father in John 17? I mean, no, how could Jesus pray to Himself in John 17? And I said, Jesus didn't pray to Himself in John 17. Jesus prayed to the Father. Well, yeah, but you say that they're the same person. I said, no, I don't. And the Trinity doesn't say that. So he had a wrong understanding of how I define the Trinity. Um, so that's the critics are usually have a problem with their own wrong definition. The, the other, probably the main reason that people have a problem with the Trinity is they have a problem with the deity of Jesus Christ. That's bottom line. That is all there is to it. That's why when you're talking to an unbeliever or a critic or somebody who rejects the faith, you should focus in on who Jesus is. You don't even need to talk about the Trinity. Focus in on who Jesus is. After all, is He not the Gospel? 
Jesus is the gospel. Christianity is all about Christ. Focus on Him. Again, they're just trying to derail the conversation. Okay, so let's go ahead and look at these ten points. I call them the biblical ingredients of the Trinity according to the Bible. So let's go ahead and survey these. And this is a systematic overview of the doctrine of the Trinity according to the Bible. This is why Christians believe the Trinity, and they have for 2,000 years. And that's why I say if you believe the Trinity, you embrace true Christianity. If you reject the Trinity, you reject the Bible. Point number one, God is transcendent, eternal, infinite, and all-glorious. God is transcendent. God transcends us. God has attributes called His communicable attributes, attributes that we share with God, and then there are His incommunicable attributes, things that are true about God that we don't share because He is so different from us. Incommunicable attributes. He is Creator. We are creatures. That's how we are different from God. That gap will never be closed. That gap will never be bridged. We will always be creatures. God will always be the Creator. So that's what I mean by transcendent. There are ways He is wholly other, different, and apart from us. Characteristics or truths about Him that we could never understand with our finite minds. Especially in this world, as we see through a glass dimly. And especially as sinners. So, that is true of God. He is transcendent. He is eternal. He is infinite. He is all-glorious. There are things about Him we cannot fully comprehend. Scripture talks about this. Isaiah 55, the prophet said in verses 8 and 9, God is talking and God said to man, humanity, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, Yahweh. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, said God. What an awesome reminder. Uh, Paul says something similar in the book of Hebrews when he is just awed by God's sovereignty. Um, in Romans 11.33, he says, How unsearchable are God's judgments and unfathomable His ways. There are things about God we just can't understand at some point. Now, detractors of the Trinity, they will mock what we call mystery. There are things that are mysterious about the Trinity and the nature of God, things we can't understand. The fact that God is eternal, think and meditate on that, that this afternoon for a while and it will begin to hurt your brain. That God is eternal. Or that God is self-sufficient. Did you know that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, totally self-sufficient. They need nothing from anybody. They're totally fulfilled within themselves and yet the triune God decided to create human beings and allow them to fall into sin and save them so that we might fellowship with God. Yet at the same time, God doesn't need our love. He doesn't need our fellowship. He's totally sufficient within Himself, yet He creates others so that He can have relationship with other people. That, that boggles my imagination. God, why did You do that? You didn't, you didn't need to do that. And He is eternal. And His wrath and all these other attributes, they're beyond comprehension ultimately. But detractors of the Trinity will say, oh, you just chalk off the Trinity to, and calling it mystery. And many of these people who are critics of the Trinity, they don't believe in mystery. They think that is a cop-out, a lame excuse. And they reject mystery. Because actually the reason is, is because every spiritual truth has to be subject to their logic. They are not content with not knowing something. They are not content with mystery. You know what that is? That is one of the worst sins in the Bible. That is pride. Human pride. Paul condemns it in Romans chapter 9. You are never going to understand in this life everything there is to know about God. As a matter of fact, did you know that God purposely didn't reveal everything there is to know about Him? 
He only chose some things to reveal to us. That's in the Bible, Deuteronomy 29.29. Listen to this. The secret things belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed belong to us. So the Bible does not contain everything there is to know about God, but it reveals everything we should know about God and are responsible for knowing about God. For God to withhold some of His revelation about Himself is to His glory. It reminds us that we are but creatures and finite and sinful at that. But anyway, just along with this theme that God has transcended way beyond us, that uh, there are things about Him that are hidden in mystery. Other verses that talk about that, Isaiah 40, verse 18, God is talking and God asks the question, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare Him to? To whom then will you compare God? He is incomparable beyond comparing to something else that is a legitimate analogy that represents the true and triune God. Did you know that? There is nothing on planet earth that we can carve, create, or explain as a legitimate analogy of what God is like and who He is. That's what Isaiah says. It is a rhetorical question. To whom will you compare God? It, really what it's saying is there is nothing that you compare God to that is legitimate or does Him justice. He's the transcendent, infinite, Almighty, all-glorious, eternal God. He is beyond being compared. That is why God condemns idolatry in the Ten Commandments. There is no graven image, nothing that can replicate His character. Nothing on earth. That's why when we're trying to explain the Trinity to people, I just do not even go there saying, well, God is like an apple. Well, no, God is not like an apple. God is like an orange. No, He's not. God is like an egg. No, God is not like an egg. God is like a clover. No, God is not like a clover. It says right here, what are you going to compare God to? Nothing. So when somebody's asking you, well, explain the Trinity to me. Well, I'll try my best. All I can do is tell you what the Bible says. Well, oh, that's hard for me to get my brains around. Yeah, it's impossible for me to get my brains around. I can't. There's nothing I can compare God to. I'm sorry. Well, how can you believe in a God like that if there's nothing you can compare God to? What image will you compare Him to? Well, you have to resign yourself to the psalmist in Psalm 139, verse 6, who said this, when he was thinking about God's infinite character and the fact that He was omniscient and the fact that He was omnipresent, could be everywhere all at the same time and yet bigger than everything else, which was beyond the comprehension of the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 139 and concluded and said, such knowledge about God is too wonderful to me. It is mind-boggling. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. That should be our response to unbelievers. You know, it is biblical, it is legitimate, and it is encouraged to tell people sometimes when they ask you a question to simply say, you know what, I don't know. I do not know. And I can't find that answer yet in the Bible. Because maybe it hasn't been revealed by God, or maybe it's in keeping with this verse, it is too high for me to attain. And then you are in awe of how great God is. And that brings us to Hebrews 11.6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. To go to the true God of the Bible, the true God of the universe, step number one is you go to God in faith. Well, prove it. Prove He exists. I can't. I can only go to Him in faith. Prove that Jesus rose from the dead. I can't. Did you know that? I cannot prove that Jesus rose from the dead. I can only accept that by faith because that is what Scripture records. There is no scientific, tangible evidence empirically today that says Jesus rose from the dead. I believe it by faith because God's revealed it in His Word. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 7 is a mandate to all Christians. We walk by faith, not by sight in our daily living. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's the Christian life. If you're always looking around for tangible, empirical answers, then maybe we got an issue with pride. 
which is a great temptation in this day and age, the technological age, the mathematical age, the scientific age, the Bay Area. Show me the proof is the demand and the hue and cry. And yet the Bible says, no, Christian, we walk by faith, not by sight. That pleases God. 1 Corinthians 2.7, Paul said, we speak of God's wisdom in a mystery. And he was talking about the things that God has revealed, the gospel, who Jesus is, and God Himself. These are mysterious. A mystery is something that God has unveiled. And that no human being through intuition or empirical research could attain to. There's only one reason why I believe the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's because I found it in the Bible. I didn't come up with it on my own. Didn't discover it. No man did. God revealed it. That's why we believe in the Trinity. And Paul calls it a mystery. Beyond human wisdom. As a matter of fact, look what he says about human wisdom in 1 Corinthians 3.19. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. Moronic, literally. The wisdom, the so-called wisdom of this world is moronic. It is foolishness. It is empty. It is not truth. So that is the transcendence of God as we look at the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, specifically, the details of the doctrine of the Trinity takes us to point number two, that there is only one God. This is kind of the pillar of the triune understanding and the biblical God. There is only one God. Christianity believes in monotheism, not more than one God. Just a couple of verses from Old Testament and New Testament. I could give you a zillion verses. Don't have time. Old Testament. The most famous verse in the Old Testament upholding the doctrine of monotheism. Orthodox Jews say this repeatedly daily from memory every day. This is their great prayer to Jehovah or Yahweh. Hear, O Israel. It's the Shema. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. God is one. God is not polytheistic. God is monotheistic. There is only one and only one true God. I put the Hebrew word for one there. Echad, E-C-H-O-D. There are different Hebrew words for the word one. I don't know if you knew that. Why is this significant? Because in Genesis 2.24, when God brought Adam and Eve together, one person and another person, and He joined them together on their wedding day in Genesis 2.24, He said, the two shall become one flesh. That is awesome. Echad, same word for one. Two persons that make up one entity. That's marriage. Three persons that make up one entity. That's the Trinity. And we are made in God's image. Another great verse, Isaiah 45, 21 and 22. There is no God apart from me. This is God talking. This is a monologue on God's part. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So much for polytheism or many gods which is what Mormonism teaches. Many gods. You can become a god. New Testament upholds monotheism as well. 1 Corinthians 8.4, Paul said there is no god but one. He was echoing Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. Paul was a Jew. Prayed that his whole life. It was still true after he became a Christian. There is only one God. Paul says in Ephesians 4.6, he said this many times, starting off his epistles and in the middle, he says there is one God. Monotheism. Point number three about the Trinity. God is a complex being. What I mean by that is God is a complex or a plural being. Inherent within God's nature, there is a plurality somehow. It was clouded in the Old Testament. It was there, but it was veiled. 
There were hints of it, but it is fully disclosed in the New Testament. This plurality in the Godhead. Not three gods, but there's a plurality of something else. Not gods, but something else. Well, what is it? Look at Genesis 121, the very first chapter. You remember that pastor that said there is absolutely yeah, the pastor at the New Life Church? The Bible does not teach the doctrine of the Trinity. And I'm saying, well, yeah, it does in Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter in the Bible. Look at it. Day 6 of creation. God created everything else. Now He's going to make the culmination of creation. That's man and woman, the human race. Then God said, and I put the verse down for you. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Okay, now stop there. God is creating everything in the being. This is God the Creator, the one true God. Uh, in English, G-O-D is singular, right? God said. Actually, the verb said is singular. God said, let us. Okay, us is a plural pronoun. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Us, our, our. Those are plural pronouns God is ascribing to Himself from day one. In creation, God was revealing that He was a plurality. He was a complexity. Now, it doesn't say three, but it is more than one. So, it, it doesn't teach the Trinity explicitly, but it allows for the truth of the Trinity that is revealed in the New Testament. From, from the very get-go, God says, let us make man in our... This is the triune God of the universe talking. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, before anything existed in the divine eternal counsel of the Godhead, they said, in unison, all three, let us make man in our image. That's the triune God before creation. By the way, the word for God there that is singular in your English translation, did you know that word is Elohim? The most frequently used name for God in the Old Testament. Elohim. And if you've taken Hebrew, you know that when you add an I-M on the end of the word, you made it plural. God's name is plural. Did you know that in one of the Psalms, Psalm 80-something, that word Elohim is translated in your English Bible as God's. Same word. God's. There's a plurality there. It's not, in this case, it's not a plurality of God. It is a plurality of His personhood. God's very name is plural in nature. It's amazing. So it's in the Old Testament. Uh, stay in Genesis. Genesis 3.22. Adam and Eve sin. God chases down Adam and Eve to convict them, to reprove them, to provide salvation for them. Verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man, Adam, has become like one of us. There it is again. A plurality. Look at Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel. Same thing. They become proud. They're going to build a tower to reach the heavens. God is disgusted. They're being disobedient. So God goes down to rebuke them. In Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, God says, Come, let us go down and confuse their language. That's what Yahweh said. Yahweh refers to Himself as us over and over and over again. It's a plurality of persons in the Godhead. One God, three persons. Okay, and then look at uh, in the handout there, Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. It says, Thy throne, O God. So the psalmist is talking to God. And he says, Thy throne, O God. But we know that the God he's talking to is actually the Messiah who is yet to come. 
So the psalmist is talking to the Messiah in a prayer. And he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. He calls the Messiah God. Thy throne, O God, is forever. Therefore, God, thy God, has appointed thee. What in the world? Kind of confusing. But basically what you got here is he refers to the Messiah as God and he refers to God the Father as God in the same verse 6 and 7. How do I know that the first God mentioned is in reference to the Messiah who is Jesus? Because in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, uh, he says so. He says that's what's going on in that psalm. So you have a divine New Testament commentary on the Old Testament. It's amazing. So there's a plurality there of God in the Old Testament. Isaiah 6.3, the seraphim. These are angels who exist in the heavens. They see God in His fullness as He is revealed, unlike us on planet Earth. Did you know that? God's holy angels who sit before His throne, they see what God is like right now unveiled in a way that we cannot see. And you know what they concluded? The seraphim, which is a kind of angel, a hierarchy of angels who are allowed access close to the very throne of God. And they look up this almighty, infinite Creator God and they conclude, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That is the only time in the Bible where God is ascribed the same attribute three times in a row. What was going on there? Well, we have the revelation of the New Testament in the book of Revelation where there's a similar scene of the angels before the throne of God and we are, it is unveiled for the first time to us to see. Almighty God the Father is there. The Son is also there. And the Holy Spirit is there before the very throne of God as the angels worship the Creator God. This is what's going on in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. God the Savior. It's different than Elohim. Yahweh is His personal name. God's personal name. And they call Him holy three times. Because it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit eternally existing forever. Isaiah 6, 8, same chapter. The Lord said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will go represent? This is what Yahweh said. Again, referring to Himself as us. There's a plurality in the Godhead. Last one I want to refer to. I'm going to skip down to Matthew 28, 19. Because this is true also in the New Testament. It's even clearly revealed even more. And then Jesus says in His great commission to the church as He's departing planet Earth, He tells the church and Christians... Go out, make disciples, share the gospel as you go. And when they believe, then you bring them into the church and you baptize them. They identify with the church and with Christ. Well, how do you do it? How do you baptize them? You baptize them in the name. By the way, that is singular. The word name is singular. Usually, it should, one person should follow after that. Not names. Singular. The name. The singular name of who are people baptized in the name of. The name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God's name that you get baptized into, His name is threefold. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. Not the names of. The name. And notice how Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are put on an equal plane. You are baptized in the name of the Father. You are baptized in the name of Jesus equally with the Father. And you are baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit equally with the Son and the Father. Number four, the Father is God. This is just clear. Nobody doubts this. The Father is God. Ephesians 1, 2. Paul says, God, our Father. The Father is God in all of His attributes and characteristics. That's Roman numeral number four. The next one, number five. Jesus is God. This is foundational to the Trinity and this is the one that most people reject. They do not 
accept that, that Jesus is God. We'll talk about this next week. But the Bible is clear on that both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that Jesus is God from the Old Testament. 800 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 9.6 said, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The Messiah to be born is Mighty God in His very nature. The New Testament gives us more revelation on this. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's talking about Jesus Christ. He is God. He is God equal in nature with the Father. He is God eternally with the Father and the Spirit. We'll talk about that more next week. But the point is very clearly the Bible teaches Jesus is full deity. He is God. Number six, the Holy Spirit is also God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Just uh, an Old Testament verse and a New Testament one on the fact that the Holy Spirit is deity or God. The psalmist again talking about God and His attributes. And he says, where can I go from your Spirit? Notice your capital Y. That is referring to God. God, where can I go and hide from you? But he says, Spirit. God, where can I go and hide from your Spirit? He's talking to God. Or where can I flee from your presence, God? So he equates the presence of God with the Spirit. If I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed or descend in the lower parts of the earth in Sheol, behold, God, you are are there by virtue of your Holy Spirit. The Spirit is God. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Just a great verse by Paul talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And then he just kind of throws these terms out there. Now, I want you to understand, the Lord is the Spirit. The Lord, by the way, he used that term Lord in Ephesians 26 times and it always referred to God, specifically Jesus. And here he says, the Lord is the Spirit. And right after that he says, and the Lord, the Spirit. God, the, the Lord Spirit is the Spirit. Is deity. Number seven. In other words, the Spirit so of the Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Number seven. The three persons are distinct from each other. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are distinct as persons. The Father is not the Son. The Father is not the Spirit. They are distinct from one another. When Jesus was praying in John 17, He was not praying to Himself. He was praying to the Father who was in heaven. Matthew 3.16 says that at the baptism of Jesus, as Jesus, as Jesus, the Son, second person of the Trinity, came up out of the water, out of the clouds, God the Father said, I am well pleased with My Son. And at the same time, it says the Holy Spirit manifests Himself in the form of a dove. All three persons of the Trinity were present, represented, and distinct all at the same time at Jesus' baptism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons. This is where people get tripped up. Paul just makes a passing reference. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Putting them on the same plane, but making them distinct. Referring to them as there is one Spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father. Distinct persons. John 14, 16, 17. Jesus Himself talking about the fact that He is not the Father. He is not the Holy Spirit. But they are equal in deity, they have different roles, but they're dis- distinct from one another. So Jesus is talking to His disciples and said, I, Jesus, will ask the Father. I will pray to the Father. And the Father will give you another helper. Another is the Greek word alos. It means another of the same kind. Because the other Greek word that's used frequently is heteros, another of a different kind. Another of the same kind is another person of the Godhead. I, Jesus, will ask the Father, He will give you another Helper and he may, in order that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. There it is in one little passage. You've got Jesus Himself distinguishing between Him, the Father, and the Spirit, their equality and their distinct roles. That's the Trinity. Number eight, the three persons have divine equality. 
Jesus is not inferior in His nature being in essence to the Father. Tim Wong this morning, he prayed to Jesus. Was that legitimate? Absolutely. Did you know that the Mormon church says you do not, you cannot, you should not pray to Jesus? Islam says they believe in Jesus. Jesus' name is in the Quran more than Muhammad. Yet they say you cannot pray to Jesus. If you do that, that is a mortal sin. Do not pray to Jesus. Every false religion says that. Because they don't believe that Jesus is equal with the Father. Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Jesus, but they say you can't pray to Jesus. You pray through Jesus. You can't pray to Jesus. But we remember the Christmas story in Matthew 2.11. The Magi, the kingmakers from the east, tra- traveled 500 miles, came to Jesus, said they saw the baby, bowed down, and they worshipped Him. It's in Scripture. So the three persons have divine equality. John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word, that's reference to Jesus. He was with God. Literally, He was toward God the Father. Literally, He was face to face with the Father. Literally, He was equal with the Father. On the same par before all creation. We're going to talk about that more next week in John 1.1. 1, 1. Philippians 2.5 and 6. Christ Jesus, talking about the incarnation, how He left the glory of heaven where He was equal with the Father and the Spirit, came down here, took on a human body, emptied Himself by becoming a man in a human form. Yet at the same time, He existed in the nature or the form of God. His very essence was deity and He never gave that up. He never relinquished the fact that He was almighty deity and that He had equality with God. And He let go of the glory that He shared in heaven to take on a human body to be humble, to be the Savior. But literally, the terminology is very specific that Jesus had equality with the Father before He became incarnate. And then John 17.5, Jesus said before His death, glorify, He's praying to the Father, glorify Thou Me together with Thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with You, Father, before the world began. An amazing verse. Jesus said He shared equal glory with the Father before creation. And now He's going to return to that equal glory. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, Paul puts the Holy Spirit on the same plane of equality, importance, and glory as Jesus and the Father. He says the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. The Lord is in reference to Jesus. So the point is the three persons have divine equality. Number nine, this is where people get tripped up as well. They are equal in glory as God, as deity. Yet the three persons have distinct or different roles. They have different functions within the Godhead. Each has a distinct role in time as they deal with sinful humanity. What was the Father's role? Well, the Father historically is known the as the first person of, of the Trinity. And the plan of he is the source, the center, and the plan of salvation. Over and over again. Ephesians 1, we saw that. John 3.16 For God the Father so loved the world that He gave His Son. So He's the sender and the initiator in salvation. Primarily. And then I put some other verses there where you could see that. John 14, 26, 28, 16, 28, Jesus Himself says that the Father sent the Son into the world. The Father sent the Son. The Son did not send Himself. The Father sent the Son. It never says the Holy Spirit sent the Son into the world from heaven. The Father sent the Son down here. What was the role of the Son? His function. The Son, He's the second person of the Trinity. He was sent by the Father. He, his job... Part of it was to reveal Almighty, Infinite, Eternal God in the flesh. That's why Jesus could say in John, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. He is God manifest in a body. He's the exact representation of the nature of God, says Hebrew 1. That is the job of the Son. He is the incarnate one. 
God the Father did not become incarnate. Jesus did. By the way, Jesus never had a body before He became incarnate through Mary. When Jesus existed in eternity past, He was a spirit just as much as the Holy Spirit and God the Father were spirit. But He condescended and took on a human body and now has a glorified body. So that was the job of the Son. That was His function and distinct role in the Godhead. And then finally, the Holy Spirit had a distinct role and He's the third person of the Trinity. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. John 15:26 tells us that, that He was sent by the Father and He was sent by the Son to do His role. One of His main jobs is to glorify the Son. He never seeks to glorify Himself. It's always to glorify the Son. And the job of Jesus Christ is to glorify the Father so that God will be all in all. They have distinct roles. Other distinct roles of the Holy Spirit is He indwells believers. Literally. He illuminates Christians so they can understand spiritual truth and Scripture. So that is that great truth that the three persons, although they are distinct, they have different roles or functions in time, temporally dealing with human beings. And then finally, number 10... I would propose that the Trinity is relevant to our daily living and worship. In contrast to the pastor I quoted at the very beginning who said that the doctrine of the Trinity detracts from the important themes of the oneness of God and biblical truth. And I would say actually Trinity, the Trinity is at the heart of Christianity, not just what we believe, but in how we live our daily lives. And examples I gave you, and you can find these in Paul's epistles, was in our prayer life. Did you know the, the Trinity is involved as we talk to God? We pray to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, because we have a relationship with Him by virtue of His salvation on our behalf. And it is in the power and the mediation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who lives inside the Christian makes it possible for us as finite creatures to communicate with a holy God. So every time we pray a legitimate prayer, it is a prayer to the Trinity, through the Trinity, by the Trinity, for the Trinity and His glory. Daily prayer life. In our Bible reading, we're reading about God in light of what Christ has done through the help of the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. Sanctification. We want to become holy and be like Christ because God has saved us and He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us become more and more holy. Every area of our life involves the Trinity. When we become a Christian, we get baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The triune God saved us. It is the triune God that we represent. Everything about the Christian life is about the Trinity. And finally, as we go out and share the Gospel, we need to share the truth of the Trinity. You don't even have to use the word Trinity if you don't want to. But you can just simply do what the Apostle Paul does and what the Bible does in the New Testament. That God is a holy God. God created every human being. Humanity fell into sin and God desires that they repent and be saved and come to Him. That is the desire of God that all would be saved. Calls them to repentance. We've sinned against God the Father, a holy God. And God made the provision by providing His Son, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, who willingly came down here and bore the penalty of our sin by being punished on the cross by God the Father. And Jesus Christ rose again from the dead three days later, overcoming our sin, hell, death, this world. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and ask Him to come into your life, He will send the Holy Spirit to immediately reside and live in you as a Christian and the Holy Spirit will regenerate you and bring you back to life. He will create you spiritually. So in the process of salvation, the heart of the Gospel is the triune God. It's the God we know, the God we represent, the God we serve. So let's go ahead and pray to the triune God of the universe and thank Him for our time together today. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for the privilege to pray to You. We thank You that as believers... We can pray to You because of the work of Jesus Christ as Savior, as Redeemer, 
as high priest and that it is also possible because for every Christian you've given them the Holy Spirit to live inside of them and the Holy Spirit helps us pray and also intercedes on our behalf. So we thank you, God, that you have revealed yourself, who you are, Creator God, eternal, triune, which is a mystery, but we believe it by faith because that's what you've revealed in your Word. God, I just pray that you would help us understand this truth, meditate on this truth, glory in this truth, so we can bask in the reality of knowing you and also that you will use it to help us to be discerning and empower us in every area of life, whether it's our prayer time, talking with you, growing in holiness, or sharing the gospel wherever we go. We just pray that you are glorified this morning. Thank you for the treasure of your word as we commit this day to you in Christ's name. Amen. The message you've just heard was recorded at Grace Bible Fellowship of Silicon Valley. For more information, visit us on the web at www.gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009. 30-0009.